Welcome to Humanly, the podcast searching for the truth about health and wellness. Here's your host, Daniel Reuters. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Humanly podcast. I'm Daniel Reuters, and today I'm joined by Dr. Melissa Sell. Melissa, thank you so much for coming along. Oh, thank you, Daniel, for having me. I'm really excited for our conversation. Yeah, it's going to be great. We're just touching base a little bit before we went live today or started recording the session um, and just briefly got into a bit about your journey as to where you've come from to get to this point um, with what you're doing now in your practice. So for people who don't know your work or aren't familiar with your work, uh, my experience and my exposure to you was back in 2020. There was a podcast on with, um, there was you, another lady, I'm not sure who she was or what her name was. I can't remember now. And uh, Dr. Andrew Kaufman, and you were talking about German new medicine and a friend of mine who was an osteopath, I went to him and started talking to him about this stuff. And he's like, oh yeah, the German new medicine stuff's great. And I've sort of had a few discussions with him around these things and watched some of your videos. And I'm really interested to learn more. And I guess many people wouldn't even have a clue what German new medicine's about. So I'm just really interested first and foremost to hear what your journey was like, because you originally started as a chiropractor and then you did some sort of mindset work and then found Germany medicine. So yeah, do you want to tell me what your experience was like and what your journey was like? Yeah, for sure. So I, right out of high school, I started working at a chiropractic office. And I had come from just a normal background of, you know, we took Tylenol or Advil and we had got vaccinated and all of that, just kind of normal standard American um, health perspective. And then I entered this world of chiropractic and these people were different. They did things differently. They talked about how the body heals itself. They, you know, hosted seminars on how kids don't need vaccines and how you can change your nutrition and align the spine and that your body can become healthy by um, living in a certain way. And so I was like, okay, this is pretty cool. And then I saw really cool things happen in that environment. I saw people get off medications. I saw, you know, a child who was having issues start getting adjusted and those issues going away. So I was like, this is awesome. You know, we can do things, um, take action, live in a way that's more aligned with our with our biology that we can be healthy um, by by living a certain lifestyle. And so I started learning everything about the lifestyle of health, or so I thought. And so I went to chiropractic school. And that's what I that's what I was into is like this whole lifestyle wellness. And I graduated in 2012 and started uh, practicing full time, teaching workshops on nutrition on detoxification on, you know, the stuff to clear out of your cupboards and the toxins and deodorant and the toxins in toothpaste and in tap water. And so I was very steeped in the world of all the things um, you need to do to get healthy behavioral wise, eat this, don't eat that, buy this, don't buy that, do all of these things. And so, you know, I love the work that I was doing, but even in that world, I would, there would be experiences that kind of left me scratching my head where there'd be people who were leaders of, you know, seminars and, you know, things that I would go to. And all of a sudden they'd have like a crazy diagnosis. They'd have cancer or someone would have a heart attack and it'd be like, hold, hold the phone. <laughs> I thought that when we did all these, these healthy things that we wouldn't get these certain diseases and the explanations for where they came from were just a little, you know, just a little off little, there wasn't a specific, there was like, oh, well, maybe you were exposed to something 20, 30 years ago, and maybe that's why you have this cancer now. 
and that answer didn't totally sit well with me, but I was, you know, I wasn't going to change what I was doing. I, I still believed fully that, um, you know, avoiding sugar and eating clean was the way to stay healthy. Um, but there were things in my own personal journey, um, me and my partner, we started getting more interested in uh, consciousness and the mind and perception and patterns. And I saw, you know, people who were coming to the workshops and doing all the healthy lifestyle things, they still would have issues, still had things going on that weren't fully being addressed by the behavioral prescriptions and recommendations that I was giving. Um, and so the mind started being really interested, interesting to me personally. And we, we started coaching people on understanding your perception, understanding that reality as it is versus the way that you see it are two different things. And by figuring out the, your perception of reality, you can start creating more uh, positive results in your experience. And so that was like the next stage of my journey from like full on chiropractic and, and like lifestyle healthcare to looking at the mind and your perception. And I just knew that there was a bridge between the physical health stuff and the perception mind stuff, but I didn't know specifically what it was. I started like finding old books on like psychosomatics and, you know, the mind body connection. But um, in 2017, I was listening to a podcast um, about magnesium supplementation of all things. And um, it was the woman who wrote the book, The Magnesium Miracle, Dr. Carolyn Dean. And the interviewer asked her about cancer and magnesium. And she very briefly mentioned German New Medicine and then went on with the conversation about magnesium. And I was like, German New Medicine. Okay, I've been around the health world for a minute. <laughs> what is this? Mm. And then I looked it up and haven't turned back since because there was something in, so Dr. Hammer's story. So should I, should I go right there? Into yeah, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> um, and so German New Medicine, um, that's what I was, it, what, that's what it was called when I was first, uh, when I first came across it. Um, now, Germanische Heilkunde, that's the, the, the term that Dr. Hammer um, has would like his work to be called to get away from like the medicine baggage. Um, so it's GHK uh, loosely translated to Germanic healing knowledge, Germanische Heilkunde, but or German New Medicine. And so this is the work of Dr. Hammer, and he was a medical doctor, and um, his son in 1978 was shot, and he survived for a couple of months and then ended up dying. And Dr. Hammer, a few months after that, developed testicular cancer. And he just knew that there was a connection. There was no cancer in his family. He knew that this tragic loss of his 17-year-old son and the development of this testicular cancer, he knew that there was a connection mm. there. He didn't know exactly what it was yet, but he began interviewing and asking questions to other cancer patients because he worked in oncology, so he had access to people. And so he started to recognize a pattern and you know pattern recognition is the sign of a genius so he started seeing so not only did people with a stressful life event develop cancer because that idea has been around you know for a while with Hans Selye and the you know the the stress adaptation response and the idea that something stressful happens and that somehow taxes the immune system which allows cancer cells to grow that idea had been around um, but Dr. Hammer discovered something different 
than that. Not just stress causes cancer, but he found that every man who had testicular cancer had a traumatic loss. Every uh, woman who had glandular breast cancer had a specific type of worry conflict in her experience. Everyone with a lung cancer had a death fright conflict. With a colon tumor had some type of ugly indigestible morsel conflict. And so he started seeing these patterns that these um, developments, these things called diseases, weren't random. They seem to be very specific to the right side or the left side of the body. And they followed, they followed this pattern. And so here we have an experience and then we have a tissue adaptation. And then Dr. Hammer, because he was brilliant, was like, I have got to look in the brain. You know, and CT scans were relatively new at the time, but he started looking at CT brain scans and saw that every time a person had a colon cancer and had this indigestible experience, there would be a circle in the brain, in, the, in a very specific area in the brainstem or depending on the experience and the tissue adaptation, the brain maps out the entire body. And there are control centers for uh, every single organ in the brain, and you can see these impacts. And he found this not just once, not just, you know, 50% of the time or 70, every single time. Every single time there's the lung cancer, there is a death fright conflict and a circle in the brain. Every time there is a glandular breast cancer, there is a, a word conflict and an impact in the cerebellum and so he it grew from there obviously and he was he was relentless in his search for these connections and he wouldn't write it down it didn't get into this chart it didn't get into his body of work if it wasn't consistent and reliable because that's the mark of science if there's ever an exception to something that you're presenting it is a theory it's an idea it might work this way but we see a lot of examples of how it doesn't work this way. Therefore, it's not a law and we can't rely upon it as though it is. And you know, when you look at conventional medicine and alternative medicine, we've got lots of theories, lots of ideas, but they're all statistics. Oh, this percentage of people who smoke get cancer. This percentage of people who eat you know, nitrates in their meat develop colon cancer. Well, you can't say that it's always like that because obviously some people are smoking and eating these things and not developing these cancers. So it's not a law. It's just an idea, just a theory. And so Dr. Hammer's entire, you know, this, this work, these five biological laws are consistent and they're always present. And so that was something that really intrigued me about this work. I was like, okay, these, these laws, this is, this is amazing. And so I started seeing it in my own experience. First, you know, you hear the idea of it, but then you start paying attention to your body and seeing these symptoms pop up. And, you know, before I would say, oh, it was probably something that I ate. Oh, it was probably something I was exposed to. But then I, I had to go a layer deeper and look at what was my experience of this food or what was going on in my life when I was exposed to this thing. And so you start drawing all of this, this whole new world of connections that you can draw from learning this work and applying it in your life. Yeah, as you were saying that, <clears throat> I was thinking to myself about a relatively well-known YouTuber that I watch and follow. And his story is sort of, <clears throat> excuse me, his story is sort of fairly similar to mine in a way that we're both trying to heal ourselves from disease. And to the point where you obviously think, yeah, it's a dietary thing or it's a lifestyle thing, or it's one of these like physical tangible things. So you watch his videos and he's like, oh, I'm down to eating one, two, three, four, five different foods. They're like, it's juice and it's raw meat and I'm still not getting better. 
He's like, what left have I got to cut out? So he's in this mindset of there must be something dietary related to my condition. And he says, well, I'm a fairly mentally stable guy. So I've ruled out the fact that it could be an emotional trauma. So do you see that sort of stuff where people are trying more and more desperately to get better? They think it's a physical, tangible thing, like putting chemicals on your body or getting exposed to a certain food, stripping out everything out of their diet and then still not getting better. Like, are are you seeing that in your practice with people that are coming to see you? Absolutely. And that's the thing is because we've been, we're so conditioned to look at the physical and it makes sense because we can see it. Um, And the things that are immeasurable, it's like that Tesla quote, until we start, you know, looking at uh, vibration and frequency, we look at the unseen things. We don't have a clue really about what we're talking about. When you're looking only at the physical, we're looking for a physical germ, we're looking for a physical gene, a physical food that caused my problem, a physical toxin that got into my system that's, you know, causing havoc. And because the the conflict, the experience of what caught you off guard, you know, that's the that's the thing. So the first biological law is the psyche brain organ connection. And so in order to have a conflict shock, it has to be sufficiently isolating. It's not just general stress that causes these biological programs to initiate. It's something that caught you off guard in a moment. You felt all alone in this moment. And that um, that that experience of isolation, your body turned on a program to help you to survive. And because, you know, these shocks and these experiences, often we have them very early in life, you know, these patterns and programs can get set up and initiated early on where you're looking and you're like, I don't think there's anything going. I mean, I don't think I'm emotionally disturbed. Um, I don't think that this is an emotional thing. How could it be? It's been going on. You know, we have to look back at your experience at a moment in time where you were caught off guard and your body said, okay, this is the the way that the body is programmed is for survival. It wants you to survive at all costs. And in that moment, there was a threat for your survival. So the body turned the program on. And if you haven't found a resolution to that conflict, or if you've resolved the conflict, but there's a lot of um, tracks and triggers. So these are things that remind us. So like the food, for example, if a food is causing a symptom for you, it is not the food it's you. It's the fact that that food was in your system when you had the shock, when you were caught off guard, that food was tied to the shock. And now it's like an early warning signal. If you're an animal and you're drinking at the water hole and you think everything's fine and a tiger comes out of the juniper bush to eat you um, and you happen to get away. Now, every time you smell a juniper bush or you get around anything of juniper essence, your body says, Oh, okay. Remember that time we were down at the water hole and, and it remembers your body remembers that's simply what it is. And so it activates um, the biological program. It puts you back into that adaptation um, as a means of survival. And so that's what allergies are. That's what intolerances are. When you can't eat a food, when a food causes you to, you know, to vomit or have diarrhea or to break out in a rash, what that also points us to is the type of conflict. 
you know, so a rash is a separation conflict, you know, diarrhea is an indigestible morsel conflict. Um, and so we have to, we get to decode based on the, the symptoms that present, that lets us know what the shock was. Now we have to dig for what was it? And it's all stored in your psyche. And sometimes it can be hard to remember, um, but these things can come in flashes. And once you open yourself up to these connections and don't just brush under the rug and say, oh no, no, I'm not dealing with that. Really dig. You. This is this work. It does require more, you know, self-awareness, um, radical self-honesty, and you know, willingness to see things about yourself that are operating in in the darkness of like the subconscious back rooms of your mind. We kind of have to go back there and see what's going on in order to uncover um, the roots of the conflicts. A lot of times. Yeah, I do want to get. Um into a discussion about those five laws that you mentioned. But just before we jump into that, I was talking to a guy who's been on the podcast a couple of times and he works with people who have cancer. And he was saying to me, oh, well, smoking doesn't cause cancer. And I was sort of taken back by that comment until he explained that actually it's not the smoking that caused the cancer. As you mentioned before, not everyone who smokes gets cancer. It's actually the reason or whatever happened to them emotionally um, in their life that made them want to start smoking was probably or most likely the cause. Um, so would, does that sort of, is that reminiscently true um, of your perspective in regards to things like smoking? Yeah, potentially, you know, someone could smoke because they want to be cool and then have a death fright conflict later on. And so, you know, the specific thing that causes lung cancer is a death fright shock. And so whether it was the death fright shock that the person had that caused them to turn to smoking or not, that's not, again, we, that would have to be the case 100% of the time. Um, and so the thing that is the case is the death fright conflict leading to the, the lung cancer. You know, the reason for the person smoking may or may not, in my opinion, be related to that conflict directly. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Cool. Um, so, yeah, these five laws that you mentioned um, at the start when you were introducing yourself, can you tell me what those five laws are and how they are all sort of interrelated? Yeah. So the first one was, like I mentioned, it's the psyche brain organ connection. He also called it the, the iron rule of cancer. So psyche, the psyche isn't just the mind. The psyche is your entire sensory apparatus. It's everything that's detecting what's going on in your vicinity right now. And so the psyche is constantly picking up on every little change in our environment. Um, and so when we have a shock, when something happens, when it catches us off guard, it's not a conscious decision. Oh, I'm scared now activate the program. It is, it's like a biological reflex. It's programmed in your body makes the snap judgment based on the scenario of what is happening, which program needs to be turned on in order to help you to survive. The very interesting thing about this is we all have the same programming, but we all have different perception. And so two people can experience the same objective situation. Oh, someone's, um, you know, holding up the gas station. And so they're, they're, someone's pointing a gun at the, at the gas station attendant and you're in the gas station. You know, if you are, uh, armed <laughs> and trained, you're going to have a much different reaction to that situation than if you are, uh, 10 years old and you're terrified, you know? And so how you perceive the situation and the shock depends on you and how your psyche is arranged. Um, 
And so the the thing happens and simultaneously all at once there is the the psyche um, perceives the event there's the impact in the brain and then the organ begins adapting and that kind of brings us into the second biological law which is the law of two phases so we have our normal day night rhythm normal homeostasis our bodies are more sympathetic active during the day and then around 5 p.m we shift into vagotonia or parasympathetic um, to rest and digest during the day, we're out and we are, you know, um, hunting and gathering, doing the things we need to do to survive and then resting in the evening. And so that's how it normally goes until the moment of the shock. So you have your conflict shock, also called the DHS, which is for Dirk Hammer, Dr. Hammer's son, Dirk Hammer syndrome. That's the DHS. That's the moment of shock where you're caught off guard. And so the body shifts into heightened sympathetic activity. Everybody knows this, like the general idea of like fight or flight. When you um, learn the biological laws, you learn that it's like, it's like specific fight or flight, depending on exactly what you're dealing with. So if I can't swallow a morsel, my body is going to either widen my uh, my upper two thirds of my esophagus so I can get something down. Maybe it's going to proliferate additional tonsil cells um, so that I can produce more salivary juices. You know, it's going to do something to help me uh, get it down or get it up um, in that in that moment. And so the body is adapting during that first phase. This is called um, conflict activity. And so when you're in conflict activity, the body is actively adapting to help you. You know, either there's three things that can happen when you're in conflict. You're either proliferating extra cells. That's the example, like with the tonsils or the thyroid gland. Um, glands produce extra cells because we want to produce extra juices. Um, the lungs produce extra alveoli because that needs to absorb more oxygen. Um, in the in the gut and the colon, we can have tissues that proliferate um, to absorb more nutrients or to produce more digestive juices. Um, but that's what's happening um, during the conflict, proliferation or their cellular loss. So this is where this is actually kind of blending into the third biological law where we're looking at the different colors of this chart. The, um, the red tissues, there's tissue loss during the active phase. So that's widening of ducts. So if you've got a duct and you're in conflict, that duct, if its program is activated, will widen so more stuff can get through the duct. That's how the program works um, because we want to increase the likelihood of you surviving this threatening situation. The third option is uh, functional loss. So an example of a functional loss would be the play dead reflex. So if you are in a situation where you feel stuck, deer in the headlights, frozen in fear, if that's how your body perceives it, there's going to be paralysis paralysis, loss of function to your skeletal muscles so that there's no contraction so that the predator thinks you're dead. And that's how it works. And so all of these programs, they're ancient. And so if you think about every ancestor that you have, just think back just a, a little bit to all of the ancestors that had to survive situations in order for you to be here watching this video, listening to this podcast, there's a lot of them. And every adaptation that conferred some type of survival advantage gets programmed into the system because it's like, hey, this helped somebody along the line to survive. And so we hold on to things that work. And these biological programs clearly have worked well enough to get us to 2022. Um, and so during the first phase of that healing, there's that team and the whole goal, the body is trying to help you to facilitate the resolution 
resolution of this conflict because your body preoccupied in your hands and feet are cold. You you may wake up in the night, you, you know, you have insomnia, you have trouble sleeping um, when you are in conflict because your body wants you to resolve the conflict. What is the end of this? How does this, you know, how does the story end? Um, and in nature, conflicts are pretty short. <laughs> you're either running away and getting safe, you're getting eaten, you're playing dead, and then, you know, these things are going to be pretty short-lived. But in our modern world, we have long-lasting conflicts and constant reminders of conflicts, and we're all caught up in our head about conflict. So we can stay in conflict for a very, very long time. The longer you're in the conflict, the greater the um, adaptation of the tissue and the greater the impact is to the brain. And so later on, when it comes to healing, the more conflict load that has accumulated, that's what can make uh, a healing phase very intense and perhaps a life-threatening crisis if the load of the conflict in the brain has accumulated um, a lot of mass. Um, and so that's why the goal is to, you know, keep conflict short, <laughs> resolve them as quickly as possible. Because once you do, the body shifts into um, parasympathetic phase, PCLA. So this is post-conflictal lysis, conflictal lysis being the end of the conflict. PCLA, that's the first phase of also called the healing or the reconstruction phase. So while you were in that adaptation, again, your, your tissues were doing something. They were either growing or um, eroding, and now they need to be set back to normal. That's what happens during the healing phase. So um, if the cells, if the tissue cells proliferated, and that happens with the yellow group and the old orange group, there were extra cells that grew. Now those cells, they're decomposable cells. You know how they say when they look at cancer cells, oh, they're different than normal cells. Well, yeah, because they're decomposable so that your bacteria that function within your body, they're there to decompose the tissue cells that are no longer needed. And that starts happening during the healing phase. This is where, you know, before you were high energy, you were super stressed, you're preoccupied, now you are fatigued. So when you get fatigued, pay attention. What just changed in my life? What did I let go of? What situation changed? What news did I get? What did I release? Because when you're fatigued, that's your body's way of saying, hey, you were conflicted. We were like operating on overdrive for one day, two days, two weeks. Now, we have to go into restoration phase. You know, the extent of the conflict determines the extent of the healing phase. If you were in conflict for one minute, you'll be in healing for one minute. If you were in conflict for two hours, healing for two hours, that's how it works. And so this is when, this is when most people think they're quote sick is when you go from conflict active into the healing phase, because this is when you start getting an ache. Uh, oh, my, my throat's getting sore. I'm starting to feel feverish. Oh, I'm feeling so tired. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting something. You're not getting anything. You did not get something. <laughs> Your body has shifted gears from conflict activity into resolution and your body is now repairing. So anytime I develop a symptom of it, my, I know my body is in the repair phase. It's either if I have a zit, it's my, the, when I start feeling that there's like a zit coming on, I know I had a attack or soiled conflict. My body built up extra tissue cells in the deeper layer of my skin, in the dermis. And now once I resolve that conflict, I stopped feeling attacked. My body is decomposing those extra cells. That's what this breakout is right here. You know, that's what the pus is, is the body decomposing the extra cells that were no longer needed following the conflict resolution. 
And so it allows you to reframe and understand what's happening. Now, halfway through the healing, there is a surge of sympathetic activity. You know, so you have to get to the point of deepest vagotonia. There's a deep swelling that goes on, swelling on the organ level and swelling on the brain level. That's why headaches occur when you're in this PCLA, you're in this first phase of healing. There's this swelling in your brain. And then you may get a, a huge surge of sympathetic activity. You might dream, read, dream of the conflict you have. Um, and that's uh, one of the signs of, you know, in the night, when you get to the deepest point of swelling, that's what turns the corner. You need the surge of sympathetic activity to squeeze the fluid out of the organ level, out of the brain level. That's called the epicrisis. And so the epicrisis can be a sneezing fit, um, a muscle spasm, um, a, a heart attack, all sorts of things, big health events occur at this big squeeze. It's kind of like giving birth. <laughs> the, like the, the biological programs, you know, the, the, the birth process also follows, uh, follows the, the laws. And so the, that big squeeze, and then you go to PCLB, which is a second half of healing, where the body continues to repair and restore the tissue that needs to be restored in order to get you back to homeostasis. So that's the second biological law. <laughs> Anything you want to talk about there? <laughs> um, so when we're dealing or looking at these sort of conflicts in natural, the world of natural medicine, we're very focused on prevention, right? So are there ways to help people prevent these traumatic events from affecting them? Like are there ways to give people tools that they can build up some resistance or resilience so that things don't happen again? Or is it very much that we're just living in that type of broken um, Western toxic lifestyle and whatever we're impacted by, we then have to deal with afterwards. What's your take on that? So I think that um, we have a huge capacity to recognize recognize. So we can't protect ourselves from shocks. I mean, even if we were living in the most wonderful, lovely, um, whole society with lovely little communities, there would still be capacity for shocks, for things to happen that catch us off guard. Obviously, it's much less likely our society as it stands is almost tailor-made to um, shock children and to create um, huge trauma. Um, if it wasn't intentional, it certainly could be argued that it's almost intentional um, to keep people sick and in the model. Um, so we can't protect ourselves from shocks per se, but what we can do is develop a greater capacity, like you said, this resilience, this ability to recognize, you know, parents that are starting to bring their children up in this model, parent very differently, you know, because again, that feeling of isolation, if the child feels isolated in their problem, if they feel like, I, nobody can help me with this. Nobody, nobody knows what I'm feeling. Nobody can, you know, can see the world like I see it. That's what creates the the conflictive nature of the conflict shock is feeling alone. And so you start to communicate differently with your children when you know that these conflicts, if they feel like nobody hears them, nobody can see the world as they see it, um, they may stay in conflict. And so, you know, our communication changes, the way we raise children changes when you understand the biological laws, the things, you know, like if your child is experiencing extreme distress because they're out, you know, you're sending them to, you know, to kindergarten or to daycare, 
you know, you might have to rearrange your life to live in a way that's more in alignment with supporting, you know, a low conflict lifestyle. And so, you know, people's willingness to do that may vary. Um, but sometimes, and that's the thing is when you really, really understand GHK, you think biologically, you know, and I'm, I'm working more and more every day to, to think biologically, think in this ancient way, think, you know, how, what makes sense to do from a biological, ontological perspective, given my ancient hardware that I'm working with, you know, and sometimes it's different than what the modern mind wants to do. The modern mind just, you know, thinks we, oh, I'm, I'm feeling so limited because I, have to stay home with my children. It's like, well, listen, you know, your biology says, you know, your children need you and their biology says I need my safety. I need my mother. And so despite our modern world that wants to, you know, separate mothers and children and get everybody off doing their own thing, biologically, that's not so sound. So we do have to alter the way that we live in alignment with with this these biological laws. Um, and then working to develop that resilience where stuff happens, but we get stronger. I love the um, the concept of anti-fragility, um, the book um, by Nassim Nicholas Taleb called The Anti-Fragile, you know, it's this idea that we're not just robust and we can just take a lot of hits and we're fine, but that everything that happens to us actually makes us stronger and better. And that's where I really do see GHK and this knowledge. It's for, you know, personal evolution. Everything that's ever happened to me, all the bad stuff can be reframed as a strength, can be looked at through the lens of this made me so much more um, compassionate and able than I would have been if I didn't have this. And so it's a major reframe of everything that's happened to you, I think is necessary in order to become more resilient to the shocks of life and really welcome the uncertainty of life. Because a lot of people just live in chronic anxiety and fear of the uncertainty of life, which is like, you're never going to get certainty in this life. <laughs> so you better learn to, to play with that uncertainty in a way that feels good instead of a way that feels terrifying. Awesome. Yeah, it makes sense. I was walking through the shops with my partner maybe yesterday or the day before and there was some people walking beside us and they were having a conversation it was it sort of young-ish female maybe i don't know 14 15 years old and she was having this conversation with her mother like oh um your sister's your little sister's having some friends over this weekend like we need to get a movie what do you think they should watch should they watch frozen and the 14 year old child was like mom, you can't let the kids watch Frozen because when I watched it at their age, um, it psychologically traumatized me for two years, right? And her mom sort of laughed at it. Um, and, and it was like, I, I remember that just so clearly, um, even though it only happened a couple of days ago. But that young girl has said to her mother, there's a trauma that's affected me, something like Frozen. Like that stuff, I don't think it's for kids anyway. Like it's more adult type of viewing but um it's affected this child in a way now that that may possibly manifest as something later on in life right and you may not ever really understand or fully comprehend how detrimental that one experience was to that child um so is it do you think that's where a lot of these issues are coming from early childhood exposure to these traumatic events and now this is why we're seeing such a prevalence of chronic disease in certainly the Western society is that we're getting all these like, like early life traumas um, that are then presenting themselves 20, 30, 40 years later. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it presents itself right away, depending oh, right on, away. on the type of conflict, you know, right. so 
you know, yes, from just, and that's where you know, our motherhood and women having children and which model you're going to bring your children up in determines a lot about the shocks that they're going to experience, you know, so babies can experience conflicts in the womb. You know, if the mother is conflicted about even being pregnant, if they're, you know, concerned about if there's ultrasounds happening, the ultrasound in and of itself can be the very first conflict that a, a child experiences because the sound drowns out their connection to their mother's heartbeat. You know, and so that can be the a separation conflict or a territorial fear conflict. You just don't know how it's going to influence that child. Loud noises that a mother gets, ex, you know, exposed to. Um, we get we're just so used to, you know, jets flying overhead and people doing yard work and using saws and all sorts of stuff. But again, thinking biologically for this baby, the only time you'd ever hear something like that was a lion's roar. <laughs> you know, if you'd hear a loud sound like that, and that's a truly threatening situation and so the baby again feeling isolated alone scared has to adapt to that and so things like you know what we call genetic conditions we have to look at what did that mother experience before her baby was even born and and then you look at the the birth process itself the um you know whether it's induction the the way that they handle the baby um in their in its first hours they separate the baby from the mother almost immediately there's no like okay i'm just out in the world and now all of a sudden i'm being handled and washed and poked and prodded and all sorts of stuff is happening so when babies develop um jaundice you know soon after birth that can that's a territorial anger conflict and it's causing adaptations, you know, in the body of this tiny baby. And then they separate the baby even more and say, oh, you have to go lay under these lights now away from your mother. Mm. When that's like the source of the problem is that you took the baby from the mother too quickly um, and started doing a bunch of stuff to it. So yes, our the modern way that we handle, you know, birthing and parenting. And so that that's that very first connection. And that's the thing is that the baby, if it doesn't, if the mom and the baby don't like connect in those moments where it's like, listen, I'm, I'm your safety. You know, the mother is the, is the whole world for the baby. And they really are kind of like one thing for at least 18 months, you know, if not more than that, of, of we're one together. And our, my safety is your safety. My okayness is your okayness. So all the stuff that the mother is feeling, that baby is feeling. And so when it comes to, you know, breastfeeding and eating enough and, you know, crying and um, all the conditions that babies tend to get, you know, childhood illnesses, we have to look at what's going on between this mother and this baby, you know, there, and there's such a depth to that relationship and it can't be brushed over. And I think that we do, we just think, oh, well, yeah, we'll figure it out. But when you don't see how each of these conflicts can stack up and cause a child to, you know, cause I know people who didn't vaccinate yet, um, their child developed autism and it's like, hold the phone. How is that even possible? In my old model, I was like, what, what, no, this can't be. They, they must've, they must've been vaccinated. They had to have been vaccinated to get autism because it's the vaccines that cause the autism. Right. And so how, how do we square up when there's exceptions like that, when we're so certain in the alternative model that the vaccine causes the autism, what about the person that didn't vaccinate their kid, but they, they develop or are ex exhibiting, you know, uh, characteristics of autism. And so, you know, from the GHK perspective, it's a constellation where the child experiences two conflicts that locks them in so that the when you have these two conflicts affecting opposite sides of the brain and this is kind of a very very detailed um when i discovered this world of ghk i was like whoa there's there's seriously so much 
do this. And so Dr. Homer, he mapped out why, you know, schizophrenia, bipolar, um, all these psychiatric conditions and mental health problems that people have, constellations. And so it's specific um, conflicts affecting opposite sides of the brain that locks you into a particular uh, point of view, a particular um, adaptation. He calls it a super sense. So even things like um, there's something called the Casanova complex or um, someone who's like is hypersexual or a nymphomaniac. These all these things have to do with the organization of the conflicts you've experienced. Autism also. It's about conflicts, not necessarily about vaccination. However, a vaccination can be a conflict experience for a particular child if they're being held down, if they are scared, if they're having a scare fright or a territorial fear because of what's being done to them, that can initiate, that can be one of these conflicts that contributes to the autism constellation, but that doesn't mean that it's the only thing. You know, I know someone who um, took their child to like a swim class, you know, and everyone's like, oh, these swim classes are great. You just throw the baby in there. They, you know, they figure it out, they learn to swim. And yes, some babies do, but some are terrified and some have a conflict about it. And so that's why you really have to, you can't say, oh, never take your baby to a swim class because you know it's gonna cause them a conflict shock. But you might want to keep that in mind that it could be a conflict shock for some babies. Right. Same thing with the right. vaccination process. It's not that everybody experiences it that way, but some kids can. And that's why this is so individualized and unique to you know the experience of the individual who's expressing the symptom. And that's why we can't use statistics we have to look at individuals. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, even though you mentioned the whole genetic thing as well, and that's probably like a conversation in itself because I'm sort of questioning that whole thing about whether or not a disease that we see passed down or inherited a genetic condition is actually the way that we think that it is. And it's interesting that you bring up this sort of conflict that could be potentially passed down from the mother to the child or that there's a conflict in the womb that's unresolved and we attribute that to being <laughs> a genetic condition. I think that's really, really interesting. Um, but in saying that, I still want to um, go through and talk about the other three laws because I think that's important. So, yeah, maybe we move into the third one because I'm interested to hear Perfect. Yeah. So the third biological law is the ontogenetic system of tumor and tumor equivalents. So it's basically which tissues do what. And so Dr. Hammer, so when we are um, an embryo, you know, the when we have our first cellular divisions, the the tissues differentiate into three layers, functionally four. And so that's the endoderm, which is the yellow, the mesoderm, which is the orange, and then the ectoderm which is the red. And so the endoderm, that is the most basic tissue. That is the oldest, most ancient tissue. And that is controlled from the oldest part of the brain, which is the brainstem. And so think about like the most basic organism possible, a little organism living in the, in the, in the ocean. And it has, um, you know, it takes in food, it processes food and it eliminates food. So it's reproduction, um, it, it eats and it respirates, you know, so those are, that's the function of the, the old tissue. And it's controlled, like I said, from the oldest portion of the brain. And so this tissue um, functions with cellular increase during the conflict activity. Once again, that's like the tonsils, the glands, the, um, the, uh, the lung tissue, the, the thyroid gland, this is going to proliferate during the active conflict. And then once the resolution's taken place, it's going to be decomposed with the ancient bacteria in the body, which is tubercular bacteria. 
Mm-hmm. And so tubercular bacteria um, is, is what, and it's just a shame that we've tried to, we've pasteurized milk and got rid of the tubercular bacteria. And we've tried to vaccinate to eliminate this tubercular bacteria when the tubercular bacteria is um, vital. It is vital microsurgeons that live inside of our bodies. And medicine even knows this. They call it latent TB. And so these are people that they test and they have tuberculosis in their body, but they don't have a tuberculosis infection. Mm. How can that be? And that's because these bacteria, they just hang out. They live inside of these tissue layers. And so the tubercular bacteria is always in the endodermal tissue. That's where it lives. That's where it hangs out. And it's dormant until the moment of resolution when it's necessary. Um, And so it only becomes active when the body needs it. And it operates in that yellow tissue. Now, the orange, that is the, there's the old mesoderm and the new mesoderm. The old mesoderm is controlled from the cerebellum and it functions similarly to the yellow. And so again, there's cellular proliferation. This is the deeper layer of skin, the dermis. This is the breast gland. It's the uh, the pleura and the peritoneum. They're like these protective coatings and layers in the body. So once again, they increase in tissue size for a layer of protection. And then during the conflict resolution, they're decomposed. Then we shift into the new mesoderm. And the new mesoderm is also called the luxury group. And this one operates a little bit differently. So these two, um, the cellular increase during the yellow, the cellular increase during with the orange, that is to the, the biological purpose, like the meaning is fulfilled during the conflict for these ones. So it's to produce more juices. It's to produce an extra layer. And then the body is setting that back to normal during the healing phase. Now with the new mesoderm, this is the connective tissue of the body. So the stuff that gives our body structure. So this is bones, um, cartilage, muscle, uh, fat tissue, fascia, all of our connective tissues. And so this one, during the active conflict, there is erosion. There's tissue loss. And um, and this is a the, the theme for these conflicts is devaluation. So this one was, again, survival, reproduction. Um, this one was integrity, protection. So that extra layer. Now the, the new mesoderm has to do with, with our, our, our physical structure and our esteem, our self-esteem. So if you have a self-devaluation conflict, this is feeling not enough. I'm not able. I'm not capable. I'm not strong enough. And so when the body hears the message, I'm not strong enough, it starts to renovate your tissues. So during the active conflict, there is erosion, there is loss of tissue. This also happens um, in the ovaries and the testes. So there's loss of tissue during um, an ovarian conflict, which is a loss type of conflict. There's loss of tissue during a severe self-devaluation conflict affecting the bone. Then once you resolve it, this is why he calls it the luxury. Once you resolve these types of conflicts, the body rebuilds that tissue from the inside out, making it stronger. You know how they say that after you break a bone, it's the strongest bone in your body? Right. That's kind of how this program works. So after you erode the tissue, the body is now making the lymph node, the bone, um, the ovary bigger and more able, more capable of functioning. Um, and, and again, for your survival. So it becomes bigger after the resolution, which is why it's called the luxury group. Hmm. Then the red tissue, that is the ectoderm. So this is the youngest type of tissue and it's controlled from the youngest portion of the brain, which is the cerebral cortex. And so 
this is where we start worrying about our our role in the in the society you know so social um separation type conflicts am i going to be close to the group or kicked out um this has to do with um our kind of our rank and order in the, in the pack so territorial types of conflicts have to do with this red group um like yeah i said separation and so this one results in tissue loss during the active phase and so the the skin a skin conflict of separation of either i want to hold someone close so the inside portion of the body if you want to bring someone close and you can't um, that's a conflict of separation and will result in like rashes on the inside of your body if you want to separate from someone it'll show up on the back side of your body you want them away from you hmm. and so there's tissue loss during the active phase and this is to numb the area so you have less ectodermal tissue so you have less sensation hyposensitivity and then during the um, the healing the body restores that tissue and that's when you get the itchy rash um, because the body is proliferating and restoring that tissue that was eroded during the active conflict and again that's controlled from the cerebral cortex so this is how um, when you get to know this map you have to you know that's one of the the first things I'm interested in with a person, what symptom are you having? You know, and what we have to try to figure out what tissue layer are we dealing with to know, are you in conflict or are you in healing? And where, where in, this, in, the, in the biological program are you currently? Yeah, it's very different from the biomedical medicine model where they say it's a deficiency of a corticosteroid cream. <laughs> right. There's, there's no mention of any of this type of thing. If you were to walk into a dermatologist's office, for example, and you had a skin condition, this would probably be the last thing that would be addressed when from your perspective, it should be the first thing that should be addressed. Yes. I was just getting a bunch of crazy uh, Instagram messages because I posted a picture um, of myself the other day and I was out in the sun all day and my skin looked a little, a little reddish. And I always, I mean, ever since I was a kid, some, oh, you're going to burn You're oh, you're burnt now. Oh, this is so bad. You know, you, you need to, you know, they caution you against, you have to wear sunscreen. It's so bad for you to be in the sun. And I didn't realize how much I was profoundly impacted by that brainwashing essentially, that I'm especially fragile, I'm especially vulnerable, I'm especially susceptible. So I really need to stay out of the sun. And if I happen to be out in the sun for longer than I should be, and I didn't put protection on, I'm gonna have a problem now. You know, but when I changed my perception, Actually, first I, I I changed my I reframed my association with sunburns when I started learning about nutrition because I thought that the sunburn was simply oh you know the sun hits my skin and then there's free radicals and the thing that caused in my mind back then and so this is kind of like the my progression was thinking that oh the thing that causes skin cancer is not having enough antioxidants but if I'm eating plenty of good foods and I've got plenty of glutathione and all of the precursors to glutathione so my body can you know take out those free radicals, I can be in the sun and I won't get burned and I won't, um, and I won't develop cancer because I, I have good nutrition. So that was my first like reframe of like allowing myself to be out in the sun for more than five minutes without fearing getting burnt. Um, but then I take that to learning about uh, GHK and the, the, so the skin cancer, obviously the sun cannot cause skin cancer because if it did, it would have to cause skin cancer in all the people that were exposed to sun. <laughs> and we know that that's not the case. Only some people get skin cancer. And so skin, um, we have to look at which layer of the skin is the supposed cancer coming from. You know, the deeper layer of the skin wants to 
again, that's the that's where like the melanoma comes. The sun does not shine. How do you explain that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> why, why of all the places that a person could develop a melanoma under, you know, underneath the bra strap or underneath their underwear, it's like somewhere that doesn't ever get sun. So there's that to contend with. But then also it's like the, you have to look at the look and the layer of the skin. And this is what I would experience when I did get too much sun and then felt so inflamed. I had a conflict about the actual burn. I had a separation conflict of, oh no, this is bad. I, I let myself be out in the sun. And so I'm, I'm punishing myself. I'm feeling bad. I'm feeling stupid for not wearing sunblock or not bringing a hat. And then I'm also, so when our body holds on to water, you know, when you're feeling isolated, when someone says, oh, you have a burn, oh, it's so bad that, you know, I'm sorry, you're so fair skinned, but you know, and you feel, I felt isolated in those experiences. And so when you hold on to water, any symptom that is in the healing phase gets worse. This is called the syndrome. And so the conflict is um, feeling isolated, feeling abandoned, feeling kicked out, left out, um, an existential conflict or a refugee conflict. That's like the theme. And the whole thing is like the, the fish that's been washed up onto shore. And the body holds onto water when you're experiencing this kind of kicked out, left out feeling. And when you hold on to water, the, the areas that are in healing swell up or it gets stored in your fat tissue. And so if you know, children that are, you know, sent to daycares often, you know, there'll be a family that everybody is normal size and you've got one or two family members that happen to be obese or overweight. You know, you want to look at, did this one gets, did this child get sent off to daycare because of the working arrangements of the family at the time? Because when some child gets sent off to daycare, they're feeling like a fish out of water, their body can hold on to a bunch of water and then they can become overweight. And so that's one of the, I, you know, that program is really important to look at if you have been overweight um, or if you deal with any type of water retention, you know, fluid puffiness, um, your rings don't fit, puffiness in the ankles, you're holding on to water because of this isolation abandonment. And so, you know, I know that in the past when I would have severe sunburns and my whole body just stung and burnt, it wasn't just the, it wasn't just the exposure itself. You know, because uh, just the other day I was out in the sun, you know, a couple areas, you know, got, got super red, no pain, zero discomfort, hmm. not anything. And and people, you know, I posted that and, and now people are like, oh, you're dangerous. You shouldn't be telling people this. Ah, oh, that the sun is so dangerous. You're a quack. And it's like, no. The sun does not cause cancer. It is very specific types of conflicts that cause tissue adaptations that aren't even, again, the idea of cancer is so twisted. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's based on the idea that your body's just doing something wrong, that it's out of control and we need to come in and stop it. And that is a fundamental misunderstanding of what the purpose of cancer is. Yeah. And again, like just like genetics, the whole cancer thing um, is very, very misunderstood. And, and I would tend to agree with you there. Um, I'm just aware of the time. Uh, how much more time do you have before you have to go? I'm actually open so we can keep on rolling if it's good for you. <laughs> okay. Yeah, cool. Cause I do want to get through those last two um, laws, which I think would be a nice sort of way to, to tie the, the whole podcast together, but just on that skin cancer thing. So there was someone that I was talking to a little while ago who was from Africa and they grew up most of their life there and then came to Australia, maybe in their like early twenties or something. And in Africa, they'd never heard about the skin, oh, sorry, the sun causing skin cancer. It wasn't really a thing. 
uh, all the public health programs around wearing sunscreen and making sure you cover up yourself when you go outside it wasn't really spoken about in Africa. But the person was saying when they came to Australia, even on the plane, they were like giving them information about how dangerous the sun is and they had to come in because they were obviously um, migrating from Africa to Australia. And they were given lots of information basically, and this person said it scared them and their family about going out into the sun or maybe the sun's hotter here in Australia and it's more dangerous in Australia. Therefore, we need to put on all these toxic sunscreens and things. Um, But it may, from what you're saying there, it might have been that very fact that they were being exposed to this sort of potential threat um, in their mind that, oh, now the sun's really bad and that could then possibly manifest as a problem because they've been told that it could right is that is that am i sort of on the right wavelength here totally and that's the thing is all the things that we've developed fears of oh this is bad this is scary we don't take into account the the power of those words of like this and even like with the whole covid scam it's like you you introduced a fear and we didn't this this is what terrorism is terrorism is putting a a terrorizing idea into someone's mind okay the idea that the sun causes cancer is terrorism it is it is biological terror <laughs> i love that <laughs> i i can't walk outside you know telling people that there's a germ that you can sneeze onto people that's going to cause them to have, you know, a terrible disease. That's, that's terrorism. You have terrorized the consciousness, the psyche of these people where they can't even hug their friends or walk outside or touch a doorknob without a major paranoia. You have, you have, it's the most intimate form of terrorism because it's like inside of you and you can't escape it. Once, once that idea gets in there, I swear I was terrorized by the idea that bacteria caused um caused acne you know by neutrogena commercials because i watched the picture (laughs) you know again uh, i love like the computer models we've got computer models of uh of viruses that are just it's just baloney we've got a computer generated uh graphic designer who designs this this image of a bacteria getting down into the pore and i see that as an innocent you know 13 year old who just wants to have clear skin um and look pretty <laughs> and i say oh gosh it's the bacteria and so i need to you know take all of the bacteria off my face and so i'd use like rubbing alcohol and proactive and all this intense stuff to clear the bacteria because that idea terrorized me you know i've been terrorized by lysol commercials the idea that if you touch the raw chicken breast and then it's on your hand and then if you touch here and here you're going to make your whole family sick yeah. <laughs> And so it's like, this is how we get into people's minds. And it may be, you know, innocent enough or well-meaning, but ultimately, what does it do? It causes a person to be afraid of their surroundings, of the air, of the sun, of, you know, everything. And then we have to what? We have to pay money for all of our protective gear and the stuff we slather on and our injections. And so, you know, it's brilliant marketing, truly. I mean, bravo to to those who have, you know, major billions, um, you know, by terrorizing people. But that's, you know, that's, it's on the individual to wake up to the ways in which they've been terrorized. I don't think it's on the corporations, you know, they're just doing their thing of trying to make money. And they know that fear, when you're really afraid of something, you will buy the solution for it. And so that's why the way to become sovereign is to stop being afraid of the sun and all and the air and learning once again, your ancient biological roots that your body is just going to adapt to, you know, whatever you fear. And so that's why, you know, when a fear has the ability to grip you in this way, you know, which actually leads us perfectly into the fourth biological law, which is the ontogenetic system of microbes, which I've already mentioned a bit, but this is how Dr. Hammer, you know, 
discovered that, you know, microbes are, they are our seasonal workers. They're there in the body. They hang out in their particular germ layer and that's where they live dormant, waiting for their, their job, waiting for signals from the brain that says, okay, it's your time to do your thing. Now we need you. And that's why you can come into contact with bacteria. You can drink the water. You can go to, you know, travel. And if you don't have a conflict, you won't experience any type of symptoms. It's only when you've had a conflict and it's been resolved, you know, you're going to have diarrhea because your body is now clearing out. It is using the bacteria to decompose extra cells in the gut. You know, if you're having, you know, some type of experience like that, whenever you have like a funky smell on your body, like if your breath is funky or you know, your bowels are funky or you've got some type of odor, it's because your bacteria are working. You had extra cell growth because you were conflicted in some way and now your body is decomposing. And with that decomposition is some smelly, you know, smelly odor because that means the bacteria are working, which is a great sign, night sweats. You know, night sweats are another wonderful sign. And I remember in chiropractic school, because chiropractic school, you know, you learn all of the ologies, biology, embryology, physiology, but you learn it all kind of from the conventional standpoint. I was pretty, you know, disappointed by my microbiology classes, even, you know, in chiropractic school where it's so conventional and all of the, you know, cause of disease and pathology and pathophysiology was all all conventional ideology. None of it had any regard for innate intelligence and the fact that the body, you know, knows what it's doing and develops things for a reason. Um, and so, yeah, when you are looking at oh, all these bacteria to fear and this causes that, it's like, no, if, if a bacteria is associated with a certain condition, all that means is that bacteria does a job at that site. That's it. Yeah, we've got it completely wrong. We've, we're blaming the firemen as the cause of the fire and yeah it, as you were saying before about the whole germ thing we're, we're led to believe that it is a germ that's causing the issue when in, and especially over the last two years people will say well if it's not a germ then what is it that's just a reflection of how myopic uh, and narrow-sighted our thinking is now to think that there's nothing else in the environment well, there's nothing else that could affect our, our mind um, or our physical body or our spirit or our soul or whatever else. There's nothing else that can affect us apart from a germ now, you know, and to propose that there is anything else, it just, it's such a foreign concept for people. And I think that's why this sort of work so important is to get people to realize that, hang on, there are potentially other answers for some of the things that we're observing. Yeah. yeah, and that is. And if, if a person just writes it off without saying, hmm, that's interesting. If they're like, no, it can't be that. You know that they're not attuned or self-aware enough to even realize how much they are brushing over something that could be extremely beneficial to them. Like this work is extremely beneficial to the people who take the time to, to learn and pay attention to just making these connections. But that requires, you know, an, an attention span. And we have very short attention spans. You have to remember what was going on five minutes ago. So a, a perfect example of this and a really wonderful way to start, you know, learning and seeing the, the biological laws in action is a sneeze. You know, so when you have a stink conflict, when something annoys you, frustrates you, you know, something uh, you're fed up, you're, you're irritated with something in your experience, it could be a physical smell. So it could be literal. That's the first place we look with something literal. I used to think that I was allergic to um, chemical fragrances because I learned all about chemical fragrances and how they're toxic and oh, dryer sheets and this and that. And, you know, that was one of the workshops that I would teach people 
people is how to clear all this stuff out and get good alternatives. And so I couldn't even walk by the aisle in the grocery store with the detergents because I'm like, oh, I'm so allergic to to chemical fragrances, mm. but I would have a stink conflict. It stunk to me. That smell um, signified danger. And so I would react with a stink conflict. And so if I'm sneezing, you know, repeatedly, it's because that intensely was a stink for me. <laughs> and so you can pay attention to the people around you if there's a sneeze. Sometimes like um, we'll be on videos and like if we have issues with, with the video or like the internet's going in and out, one or my part, we're like, we'll sneeze we're, like moments after because we were annoyed with the internet internet connection. And it can be little things. It can be, you know, bigger things. If someone's been dealing with like nosebleeds, um, that means that they have some type of chronic stink conflict. And so that's, yeah, the next time someone sneezes around you, pay attention. What did they, did I just annoy them? Were they annoyed with something that was going on? Um, and so, yeah, you can, you can see this and almost immediately in your life, as soon as you know what to look for. Um, and so the fifth biological law is the quintessence. And so this is the, um, the, the big picture that nothing in nature is meaningless or malignant. You know, there is no evil in nature. Nature is all meaningful, all purposeful, and it does everything it does for a reason. And so this is, there's nothing to fear. There is no disease to fear. Fear only is going to accelerate whatever process is going on. It's it's the elimination of fear and maintaining your calm. And that's the thing that's crazy. What I'm, you know, I see on my Instagram and on, you know, um, Twitter and stuff, people here, I'm encouraging people to not be afraid of like, the sun causing cancer. Don't be afraid of an ovarian cyst. Don't be afraid of, of a prostate growth because, and they're, and they're mad at me for even promoting that a person not be afraid of these tissue changes in their body because, and they, they deem me to be a dangerous influence on society as though I'm the terrorist. Mm -hmm when it's the fear and they don't, you know, obviously they can't see it because they can only, you know, repeat slogans and <laughs> regurgitate things that they've heard. I know that these people that respond to me in this way, they're not thinking for themselves. They don't even know, you know, forgive them. They know not what they do. Um, but the, uh, like, but I'm, I'm encouraging people to be confident and to be calm and to understand what your body is doing. But they equate that with danger because they think that the only way you can stay okay and healthy is by being in some type of constant latent fear. And if there, you know, if there's a lump or a bump or something, better hurry, go to the doctor right away, you know, so they can pump you full of poisons and give you even more reasons to be afraid. You know, they don't see that it's like, it truly is. The fear is the problem. The fear of disease is the, is, is worse than the disease, you know, and, so that's why um, when understanding this map, it allows you to not be afraid of disease at all, of any tissue adaptation, any tissue change. You just understand this is happening for a reason. My body is not trying to attack me. My body doesn't do anything wrong. There is no evil in nature. Um, and there's, there's, a, there's a biological, practical reason that whatever is happening is happening. And if I can make that connection and resolve the conflict, you know, this, this, this can heal. My body can heal. Yeah. It absolutely can. Your body can heal. And it's really amazing when you think about the job that's being done to make people afraid of nature and just to be afraid of living in harmony and at one with nature. Because at the end of the day, we are a part of nature and we can't exist outside of it. It is when we exist outside of it or try to that all these problems arise. And then you've got, as you said, people on Instagram and Telegram or whatever, 
giving you a hard time because you're saying, hey, don't be afraid of, of nature. It's not out to get you, which, yeah, I had the same problem. So I totally understand where you're coming from. Um, before we wrap up today, can you just give me a little bit of a, a brief rundown on what a consultation would look like with you? So if I came in for some German new medicine, I had a problem, like how long does a consultation go for? What does a consultation look like? Do I need to come and see you 20 times? Like how does it all sort of fit together? Just so for anyone who's listening, who might be interested in coming to see you or another practitioner, just has a bit of a better idea of, of what that process is like. Yeah, everybody works a little bit differently. You know, my first suggestion is to start learning it on your own to start, you know, I've got a library of, of YouTube tutorials. It's a nice place to start to just kind of start wrapping your mind around it. I have um, a link on my blog to like books to read courses to take, you know, because ultimately, you know, and the thing with this work is because Dr. Hammer, you know, he they went after him and they did everything they could to suppress him from from sharing and getting this out there. I mean, this should be legalized in the sense that this is what should be taught in medical schools. You know, this is like this is the few the, what the fact that this is the only law based um, understanding of the human body, yet it's not taught. It's absolutely criminal that we can't learn this in a clinical setting and actually be able to use the, the positives of modern medicine to help people through these programs working with nature. You know, we're just not there yet. So I do encourage everyone to learn it for yourself because, you know, in that sense, you have to be your own doctor. I coach people in understanding and kind of helping them to wrap their mind around um, around the work. So you have to have a desire to learn it for yourself. I'm not going to spoon feed it to you or teach it to you. Um, I, I suggest that you learn about the program. But then when it comes to what's going on in here, that's where I come in and helping you to understand, you know, your conflict, how your your psyche and your mind is currently arranged around the problem. And we have to start to rearrange your mental furniture and look at things in a new and different way and transform your experience. So I have people go through, um, you know, a, a detailed life and health history questionnaire to kind of bring up like, what are the things that you've been through Can try to spark your memory to for stuff that happened in the past. And, you know, things you still get hung up on and stuff that you react to in your life. And then we we go to work there to dissect like, what is this experience like for you? When you encounter these things, what comes up? What are what is that emotion like? What what message do you think that that sends to your body? You know, is it a message of safety and peace and all as well? Or is it one of anxiety and fear and things might, might not be okay. And so we have to start learning this language, learning to communicate and downgrade, you know, the intensity of our conflict. So if you're, you know, at a eight, nine, 10, it's like, can we just bring it down a little? Can we change the way the language that you're using to describe this to yourself? And so, you know, my work very much is in this experience transformation. How do we go from being uptight, anxious? I, I love to work with people who, um, who have health anxiety, like general health anxiety, where they're just kind of like panicked about one thing or another all the time. Um, I like to help them to see the bigger picture and to understand. I worked with this young mother recently who just, you know, she was kind of a neurotic basket case about every little thing. And it was, if it's not this, it's something else. And she would jump and jump and jump from one worry to another worry to, oh, he's having this symptom. Oh, what about this? And so, you know, she learned tools and that's really my role is in teaching you the tools that I've used to chill out, essentially. How can we downgrade this? How can we see this from a new perspective? Look at this from the the, the perspective of biology. How would your ancestors handle this? We mm. I just ask people a lot of questions and get them thinking in a new and different way. 
And that's what I've found successful for, you know, downgrading and resolving conflicts. Um, one of my most recent great cases was of a psoriasis. A woman had terrible psoriasis between her breasts, all around her belly button. <laughs> And it was intense for months and months and she was doing all of the holistic things all the naturopathic things all the all the homeopathy all the remedies but it was still there and it's because she was dealing with an intense separation conflict because she had gone through a divorce and then her child had to have visitation with the ex and so it was like you know and she was stuck in this zone of but i don't want him to be there i don't want him to get traumatized so i had to help her to transform that experience and so she had to become aware and she had to do the work she had to see how the separation conflict was being reactivated every single time she saw a text from the ex every time you know something in her world reminded her of her child needing to go with this person that would reactivate it for her she had to change you know the situation was what it was you know there was a legal obligation for the child to see the ex-partner but and so in that case there wasn't a practical resolution that could be that she could access um but there was an internal resolution and she found it and her skin is clear and it's just an amazing you know story of how you know she was she was concerned that it would never go away yeah. but she did because she she did the the consistent inner work that it took to to shift that conflict out you know and make it so her body felt a sense of safety rather than a sense of constant fear of separation that's awesome yeah i think there's a lot to what you're doing and i'm definitely interested in learning more because i myself this is all sort of relatively new to me i'm probably where you were i don't know <laughs> four years ago, but what was it? 2017 when you were still sort of focused on the, the, the toxicity and the nutrition side of things. Um, it's probably only recently that I've really delved into the sort of emotional and psychological side. So I'm still learning and it's great to be able to chat to people like yourself and, and hear about these things. So where can I learn more um, either from yourself or just in regards to um, just German new medicine itself and where can people find your work if they want to contact you for a consultation or mentoring or even just you mentioned that you've got like a bit of a YouTube channel there with some handy videos. So where yeah, can we find sure. all that stuff? Yeah, I think it's awesome that you're open to it, though, because, you know, sometimes once you kind of get into one zone, it can be difficult to kind of make that next jump. And so that openness to, you know, exploring it, I just think is great. And I think that everyone who's like, you know, in that realm of uh terrain theory and toxins, it's like, okay, there's one, there's another step, there's another avenue and it is important. And the nutrition is important and, you know, living a pure, healthy life, that's important, but we got to get to this point. So I, I was really excited when you contacted me that you're kind of interested in exploring this more. So um, there is, so I recommend the educational courses from Helmut Pilhar. And you can find his basics bundle um, at tinyurl.com slash ghkbasics. Um, and so that's a bundle that would be a great place if you're like, I want to learn this for myself. I want to use this, you know, for people who are health practitioners of any sort. If you want to start using that in your practice, um, tinyurl.com slash ghkbasics. And uh, my website is drmelissacell.com. Um, you can also find my YouTube channel. Like, yeah, there's a bunch of videos on there that are great to explore. And um, on my blog, also on my website, there is a, an, um, a blog post where there's books and uh, video links and courses and things that you can take to, to learn more. Or you can contact me directly through there if you're interested in chatting or having a consult. Um, that would be, yeah, that'd be the way to get in touch. Awesome. And I'll put a link to all of those websites uh, that you mentioned in the show notes. So for anyone who's interested, please go and check that information out. Dr. Sell, thank you. I really appreciate you coming along and um, talking about these things. This is obviously 
a area of, of health and medicine that a lot of people still probably haven't heard about, or if they have heard about it, maybe they don't know so much and hopefully they've learned a lot from you today. So I really appreciate you giving your time to come and speak with me. And yeah, I hope that we can sort of get the word out there about just, yeah, that there are some of these alternative and effective ways for people to help to heal their body. Um, and yeah, just help the rest of humanity heal, not only from what's been going on the last couple of years, but for the last few decades, which is sort of pretty much got us to this point where we're at now. I think there's a lot of healing that needs to be done on the emotional and the physical and the spiritual side. And I think things like German new medicine and various other therapies um, have a lot to, to offer humanity. So yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Um, any chance I have to, to share and talk about it. I, I, overjoyed to do it because like I said, if it wasn't for that podcast where I heard it, you know, it just, how, how have we missed this huge body of work? And so, yeah, it's totally worth, um, anybody investigating it for themselves because you will not be disappointed. It will blow your mind in the best way possible. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Once again, thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the show. The ideas discussed on this podcast do not replace the advice of your primary healthcare professional. If you have any questions or comments, head on over to humanly.com forward slash podcast and join the discussion. Don't forget to follow us on social media. Until next time.